Welcome to Fertility Friendly Food, the podcast. My name is Stephanie Vlakis and I'm an expert certified fertility dietitian and nutritionist and founder of The Dietologist, a multiple award-winning virtual fertility and pregnancy nutrition clinic serving thousands from around the world and of course, the host of this pod, Fertility Friendly Food. This podcast is dedicated to all things health and nutrition in the world of fertility, reproductive health and pregnancy. Each week, I bring you practical snack size episodes to help improve your lifestyle on your trying to conceive journey, alongside guest expert interviews to help inspire you to learn and grow whilst you grow your family. Welcome back, everyone, and I am excited to be sharing another story from our very own community from The Dietologist and Fertility Friendly Food, the podcast. I was pumped to hear from our guest today, Sarah, who has previously been a longtime client of ours here at The Dietologist in preparation for her journey into solo motherhood by choice. She is now the mum to almost two-year-old Hartley. can hardly believe he's almost two years old. Wild. Today, Sarah is going to share her story of the path of choosing to be a single mother by choice, the preparation and care team she assembled to support her, the trials and tribulations along the way, navigating absent menstrual cycles for many years and later a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, finding a clinic recruited donor for sperm and then progressing to IVF all whilst living with chronic pain and also running a business. We are so grateful to Sarah for coming on and sharing her story with us. As always, super important to show the utmost kindness, respect, and warmth towards our guests. I know you will. You are all fabulous humans. This is just one insight into one person's story. It is not medical advice, and we should absolutely avoid comparing ourselves to each other on this path. You are all on your own very unique path to growing your family, and if you need medical or health advice, please consult your individual care practitioner. Without any further ado, a huge warm welcome to our guest, Sarah. Welcome, Sarah, to the podcast. I know a fair bit about you, but for our listeners, perhaps can you introduce a bit about yourself, where you're from, what you do, and learn a bit more about you? Of course. Thank you so much for having me, Steph. It's so nice to see your face again. So my name is Sarah. My little guy is Hartley. I'm actually a solo mum by choice, which is basically means I got sick of waiting for Mr. Wright and went and did IVF um, solo gal style, so with a sperm donor. And yeah, so I was told from a very early age that I probably would never have children. I had no cycle from like realistically like 21 until my OB fertility specialist kind of made them happen. And yeah, so I kind of, yeah, that's me, I guess, in a nutshell. So I business owner. So I spent a long time getting that all ready so that I could go off and have a bubby on my own, which was a blessing because my pregnancy was a disaster. And my IVF was a disaster. So I spent a lot of time off work. Thank God my team kept everything running. And thank God for Steph keeping me sane and eating somewhat healthy when all I could eat was potato. Oh, yes. Everyone's got a potato, pasta, rice, cracker, wheat bix phase of the journey at some point. It is a rite of passage. Absolutely. So, I mean, you briefly touched on it there, but what was that path that kind of led you to make the decision to pursue being a solo mum by choice? Because it is something that I 
uh, encounter a lot with my clients, particularly those who are freezing their eggs, who are thinking, oh, maybe one day I'd consider that. So what kind of precipitated that thought? Was it age? Was it a particular life stage? Let us in to what kind of led you to make that decision. I think, so I came from quite a broken family. So I think it was always in the back of my mind that I'd rather do it on my own than do it in a, I guess, uncomfortable situation for lack of, of a better way of putting it. A lot of my friends have been through hell with custody and stuff like that. So it was always in the back of my head. For me, though, it was about getting my businesses grown so that no matter what happened, be it with a partner or on my own, I had stability. And it got to the point where the main, my main business, the bookkeeping, didn't really need me. My best friend's our ops manager. She was running the day-to-day. I went on a couple of like Tinder dates and it was literally like the universe was parading the most ridiculous humans in front of me. I was like, this isn't even like, it's not even that it's an option. Like, it's just not an option. It's like nothing, it would just nothing aligned. It was like, this is not, just not happening. And so I got to the point where I was like, okay, well, I'm 34. Either I do this or it's not going to happen. And so I thought, I said I was doing it, but in the back of my mind, I was like, I've been told I was infertile since I was 21. Let's just do it so I don't have to think about it anymore. I can just go back to being the infertile aunt who spoils the girl's clothes and gets on with it. And then I chose a really good fertility specialist and, well, my son is now here. I guess a combination of age and just, you know, circumstances really to summarise it, but that was the, the lead up. Yeah, I mean, I think so many of us can relate to the frustrations of modern dating which you alluded to there (laughs) made me giggle after my own foray in that arena uh, over the past couple of years but it is um, certainly something that I increasingly am hearing from clients who particularly those who are freezing their eggs I'm finding who you know are thinking about it for the future perhaps as an option now What did that process look like for you? Did you have a a donor that you knew that you were going to ask or were you going to go to the fertility clinic and get a donor? And as you said, you hadn't had a cycle for since you were 21. So what was kind of the process with your specialist went in and said, hey, I want to pursue solo motherhood by choice? Yeah, so for me it was more about the fertility side because so some solo mums, it's literally just the lack of a partner that takes them down the IVF or IUI route. For me, it was that plus, obviously, fertility issues. So my um, GP had been on to me for a, quite a while, like a couple of years, like, you could just do it on your own. And I was like, no. She's like, but you could. And I was like, I could, but let's stop talking about it. And then I actually went and saw her and I was like, okay, so I need a referral to a fertility specialist. And she actually got all excited. She's like, oh, oh, I'm not being professional. Um, it was very cute. And so she sent me off to, so Joe Scroy is who I saw. And it was more about discussing the fertility side than the no partner side, because that was a given like that. It's a structured process. You find a donor, be it on your own or through the clinic. And that was it. But working out what was wrong with my body and could he fix it was more for me the issue. Because of my past and the custody stuff with me growing up, I was never going to have a known donor. I personally think girls who have a known donor are incredibly brave. I like the unknown and the security of that. There are, it's very controversial. Some people say going unknown is not great for the child. Others say it's like there's everyone has their opinions. For me, I wanted to know. So being that he could meet the person at some point was important, which is why I went Australian. I believe overseas is a lot harder for them to meet when they're like 18, etc. But I wanted to know that I guess I had full control, which I guess makes sense. You know, I've run a business. I've been in full control of my life for a long time. Sharing that control probably wasn't going to go down very well. Mm. So yeah, so 
I was happiest to go with whatever the clinic had. I assumed there'd be all sorts of amazing donors and they'd have photos and they'd be like, I don't know, all sorts of things. And the fact of the matter was that the list was quite small and it was quite large when I went compared to what it has been in recent years. So it was very easy to narrow down like who I was going to choose and how it was going to look. But it was very much, a, I guess, a medical process. It wasn't a have a dis- difficult conversation, not difficult, but, you know, an awkward conversation with a friend. It was very much, it was just an ingredient or a medication to the process in my situation. Mm, yeah. I love how you said ingredient. That is so true because I literally talk about, and I know Joe has his own acronyms, but I always talk about conception as a recipe and you kind of need all the ingredients in the right order and the method to, for it to, you know, to bake the cake, so to speak. So, yeah, sperm is, is one of the ingredients, but that is an ingredient that you could access through the clinic. And we have a great episode as well for anyone listening on donor conception, talking about known and unknown and, and those kinds of things. It's more focused on donor eggs than donor sperm, but certainly some of the principles definitely apply. So what was it that you and your doctor were discussing in that that time where you were going, okay, I don't have a, a period, um, I haven't had one for a long time, you know, what's going on? Did you have a diagnosis beforehand that kind of explained that was the reason why or was it all kind of a new world and it's just been convenient for the last 10 or so years to to not menstruate? Um, a bit of both. So in my sort of earlier sort of mid-20s, et cetera, it was just really convenient. I kind of didn't really think about it and it was just like, oh, well, whatever. I was living up the Sunshine Coast for a while and I saw a fertility specialist in Gympie and I was basically just told, oh, well, don't worry about it. Just come to us when you want to get pregnant and it'll just be a medical process. But, you know, PCS always been thrown around and then obviously being, you know, on the plus size side of things, like I've always sort of been a size 18 to 20. Doctors just go, oh, you know, it's just your weight, you know, lose weight and that'll fix it. And it's like, okay, sure. Well, I've been skinnier before and I didn't have a period then. So it can't just be my weight, but okay. And there was lots of just take the pill so you don't get ovarian cancer and we'll deal with it later sort of thing. Then when I moved back to Melbourne, I toyed with Chinese medicine and acupuncture and all that sort of stuff. Um, and to be fair, I was very bad at taking my herbs, like very bad. You would know what I'm like with taking things. And yes, Steph is nodding quietly. I'm very bad at it. So whether or not it was my lack of taking things, or it was just my body was too broken, I guess we'll never know. And it got to the point where I was like, well, I'm going to have to go down the IVF route anyway, because of my lack of partner. So I may as well just bite the bullet and just go do it. So, yes, by the time I got to Joe, it was a matter of just checking hormone levels, checking my ovarian reserve, and I guess finding out the the right combination of medications and things like that to get my body to ovulate. It still took a long time. You know, your normal IVF cycle is, what, about 14 days? My first one was 50. I had people, like, on Instagram going, is this the same cycle? Like my doctor pulls the pin at like 14 days and I was like turning up Joe's room sort of two and three, every two or three days for scans going, this isn't working. And he's like, come on, like we can do it. Like, come on. And I'm like, it's not working. We eventually got eggs at that 50 day cycle, but we got too many. So we had to pull the pin. So that was sort of the process is really like, what is it that's going to take to get me pregnant at that point? We already knew there was problems. And I think Joe went down, like it was the discussion of, of PCOS any further than that. It wasn't really a let's work out what's wrong. It's more, was for me, it was more because I was ready to get pregnant. It was more of a, how do we get you pregnant? What was wrong was kind of just part of the puzzle. We focused more on the getting me pregnant side. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that 50 day cycle that you're referring to, correct me if I'm wrong, that was in 
hopes of maybe doing an IUI before doing an IVF cycle? Yeah. Yeah. So even though, so technically, if you've got no proof of uh, medical issues, to prove that you are medically infertile, you do two IUIs. And that then basically marks you as medically infertile if you don't get pregnant in that time. And it's the equivalent, I believe, I might be wrong, but it's the equivalent of six months of trying naturally at my age. I would, could have already been marked medically infertile. However, Joe's like, well, let's why throw a fly swatter? Sorry, why throw a machete at something we can throw a fly swatter at? Like, let's do these. And who knows? Like, maybe it will be enough. And if it's not, at least we've got time to work out what you need before we go to IVF. And at the time, I was a bit grumpy, not grumpy, but it's like, oh, really? Just like, let's just go to IVF. I know that's what I'm going to need. In hindsight, my very first transfer took, and I've still got four embryos in the freezer. And I put a lot of that down to the frustration that I went through in those IUIs and Joe having time to learn what I needed. Yeah, absolutely. Because I remember that 50 day cycle. I was working with you at that time and it was felt like a marathon. Every day felt like like another another day running this marathon. It was just such a long thing. And then the disappointment I recall of having to pull the pin on that cycle because potentially too many eggs were going to come out and the risk of higher order multiples is too high and yeah it's frustrating but it's all learned like something I always say with clients and it's it's a really crappy thing to hear in the moment but like partially fertility treatments yes are there to get you hopefully pregnant but it's also an investigative process and a learning process for both you and your doctor to learn how you respond to things to learn what the hiccup is in the chain of events in that recipe of conception what's not going right so that they can learn about that and then refine the process more to get you closer to that goal so you got very lucky with your first transfer and I'm sure it's luck but also a lot of planning and work behind the scenes on everybody's front to absolutely come together and make that happy plus a little bit of luck as well. So what did you do in anticipation of walking into all of these treatments? It sounds like you tried some acupuncture and herbal stuff before, but what were you trying to do in terms of preparing body, mind, walking into this new arena of ready for a baby? I know you're a planner, so I imagine that you had some plans on this front too. I did. I had my life planned out how I thought it was going to go. It didn't go that way. But I had like my business set up, my you know operations manager ready to go to step in when I stepped out. My sister was ready to come down because my sister's in Queensland and I'm in Melbourne. So she was ready to come down for all that sort of stuff. So all of that logistical stuff of surviving day to day. When it came to doing things to prepare myself for pregnancy, I had done I, um, puncher and stuff, but I'd literally just thrown the towel in with that. Not to say that it's not fabulous, it is, but just for me, I was like, nope. I think I did a couple of other sessions, but not a huge amount because I guess in my instance, I really genuinely did not think I was having a baby. I genuinely did my first round to prove that I was that infertile, that it wasn't going to happen and I could just move on. So I didn't really do anything other than when we got to the point where that round was taking forever, I reached out to you. You were on a podcast or a live, I think, with Joe, And I was like, okay, well, you know, they say diet helps. I'll, you know, I'll ask the question. And then that's when we did, you and I did all that testing and the big spatter in the works came out, which I love you for now. At the time I could have cried and never spoken to you again, but that was that my sugars were ridiculously high. My sugars had always been on the high side, but definitely not diabetic. I wonder if, not to say that the IVF hormones do this, not to panic anyone, but just in my instance, if they were already high, my body just couldn't cope with everything we were throwing at it because we threw a lot at it. I also have um, chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia. 
So it was a lot to be thrown at. Anyway, so we did that testing and that's when we then stepped in and started changing stuff up. But up until then, it was, uh, yeah, yeah, come on, Joe, see if you can get me pregnant. Thinking, genuinely not believing he could, he proved me wrong. He did. Yes, I remember that spanner in the works very well. And I think it was, I think he came to me. This is the question that we always are asking at the dietologist before you even get to, and it doesn't matter how your family structure looks like, the question is always, why have you ended up here? So in your case, like, yes, we know you want to pursue solo motherhood. You're going to need donor sperm. But then this, the questions I started to ask is like, why aren't you responding? Why haven't you had a period for so long? You said, maybe I've got PCOS, but I'm not sure. And I was like, okay, well, we can do tests for that. Like, let's work it out. Like, because this is not just about getting you pregnant, but it's just about your health. This is about your health and your pregnancy. This is going to be about your health as a mother long-term. And I know because I work with a lot of solo moms by choice, like your long-term health is such a big priority because you are the carer for your child. And so how you are for, you know, years and years to come is really important. I know it's important for all parents, but like there is an extra layer of there's no backup here. Well, there is. My sister would happily take him home. However, there's no secondary parent backup. Exactly right. It's kind of a different level of independence, I guess, you you need to kind of have, and that that extends to your health. And so, yes, diagnosis was a spanner in the works, and I recall you not liking me for sending you those tests. I regretted calling you so much it wasn't funny. I think I asked if we could just not tell Joe. Not tell Joe, and I was like, "These results have already been sent to Joe's rooms." What do you mean? <laughs> oh dear, that was for me. I couldn't stop them. Yeah, I know, I know. And so, and so that did have knock-on consequences into what was next for you because there was a slight delay um, in what was next because they Joe wanted to make sure that not only it was going to be effective but safe for all parties involved. Mm-hmm. Um, moving forward. And to be fair, Joe and my GP had done a lot of those tests. Mm. I just think that we, from because we were looking at specifically from a diet and a, what you do, was that possibly a bit deeper. Mm. And also I think the stress, because I know stress can affect sugars and things like that. Yeah. The stress of the IVF and then, you know, who knows the process possibly unravels. I don't want it to look like, you know, the test hadn't been done. They had. But when we ran mm. them and then ran them at a deeper level at that point, it was a bit of a, oh, God. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It was like a two or three month wait. It was like a three month wait after that. Yeah, because we tried again. everything to renormalize. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We have a couple of previous episodes about blood sugar levels and GD, gestational diabetes, and the impact of that on fertility, pregnancy stuff. So, if you're interested in those topics, definitely go have a listen to those. What Do you recall from then that we implemented or what kind of role did you feel diet and lifestyle played during that time of trying to conceive? I definitely think it made a difference also in, because at that point I was like, oh, okay, maybe I would like a baby. Like obviously I always wanted one, but I was like, oh, maybe this might work. So I think it kind of gave me something that I could do and also obviously helped the results. And it meant that when I was going to my doctors, I was a lot more informed and probably able to help the situation along the way. So, yes, I ended up on insulin, but then between my specialist saying, okay, yes, you need to be on insulin, I could then come to you and go, okay, Steph, we've done this. How do I then work that in my day-to-day life? Because I literally can only live on mashed potato and KFC chips right now, and which is not ideal for diabetes, pregnant or not. 
So, yeah, so I think it made a big difference, but it also, as I said, gave me something that I could control and then also meant I could help the process a little bit as well, as opposed to all just being medical because my pregnancy was very medical. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I remember you having a number of different specialists, even just beyond Joe, that were always touching base with you and, and making sure. And uh, you're right, like I've worked with clients in similar kind of positions to you, a, a highly medicalized kind of pregnancy because of whatever, health history, the pregnancy itself, whatever the situation is. And there's so many different recommendations and things that you need to keep track of from each different specialist and nobody really consolidates that into some kind of like how is this going to actually work in your life and not to say that that's what I do but partially because you eat all the time and a lot of your medications sit around food um, or supplements sit around food and things like that you do naturally have to talk about it and kind of cover it and so yeah that really practical element of like especially when you're feeling really crappy, you just don't have the mental capacity to be making those types of decisions and, and plans and, and things like that. So, yeah, taking that off your plate is always a big help. I'm glad you feel like it helped you. Yeah, so I think one of the biggest things that you gave is, yes, obviously we want to be as healthy and eating all the right things as possible when we're pregnant, but you go to some doctors, not all and not Joe, but certain doctors, and you're there like, okay, you need, like I went and saw the, the diabetes lady and she's like the educator. She's like, you need to eat this, this, and this. Like, if I eat that, I'm going to vomit. Like, I can't eat that and that. Well, you just have to. Okay, sure. And then you just go away feeling so overwhelmed and like the shittest person ever. And where I would come to you and go, okay, this is what they're telling me. I don't know how to do this stuff. It's too hard. And you'd be like, okay, let's fix this. And we'd make it doable. So I think that was one of the biggest things you personally brought. And I know you guys are quite unique in how you do things. But, yeah, it made a big difference. Yes, because there's always, I think, and this is just speaking more broadly, is that generally speaking, a lot of other healthcare professionals will provide some basic level of nutrition guidance of like, you should eat low GI or you should eat more fruits and vegetables or you should whatever. Mm. The shoulds come out, right? Like the should, 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 should. And the reality is, is most people have enough knowledge to probably already know what you're talking about yeah or they've you know looked it up on the internet you know that's always a slippery slope but most people have looked up some stuff on the internet right and that's not news to them the issue is people don't understand why or how to do it and make it practical in their lives and healthcare other healthcare professionals that don't specialize in nutrition don't have the time energy or skills to actually do that it's not to knock them it's just that that's not what they're for. That's not their training. It's not their expertise. It's not It's not their role in your care. And so it's often the one of the things that people often go, oh, you know, nutrition, optional, extra. I can just get this advice from Google and work it out myself. And some people can, but some people can't. And that's how it is. Now, my other question to you was, as you, as all of you know who are listening and Sarah knows too, last year I froze my eggs and navigating that process as a single woman at the time, I it brought up a lot of different feelings for me that I guess I didn't expect, like whilst I was doing the stimulation in particular. And then like also just some of the practicalities, like who comes and gets you after your egg collection when you need someone to drive you home? Or like when you're just feeling a bit annoyed by the stupid needles or the symptoms or whatever it is, like what kind of support structures did you have 
for yourself during that time. And, yeah, like let us into that because, yeah, some of the stuff definitely took me a little bit by surprise, that's for sure. Um, Well, my original plan was my sister was going to fly down for all the big stuff, then COVID, and we didn't know how long COVID was going to go for. And every time something would come up, we'd be like, it would look like we are going to open up again. So I was like, okay, cool, we're right. And then we wouldn't because Queensland were so tight with their openings and whatnot. So I think my one big piece of advice would be to have lots of backup options. I was really lucky. I started sharing my journey um, on Instagram openly at the very start. Some person randomly went, this would be interesting to follow. And I went, okay. And the IVF and Solomon community, but particularly the IVF community is very like close-knit. My person who took me to my egg collection was another IVF person that I met who's doing IVF. She came and stayed and took him, took me in, all that sort of stuff. When I ended up on bed rest, when I ended up on bed rest, I went, started going to early labour, long story, um, I had random people bringing me food and whatnot. So I think just by being open and speaking up and going, this is what's going on, it's really hard, you'd be surprised who would be willing to stand up and help. Being independent, I think a lot of us just go, oh, I'll be fine. No, it doesn't work that way. So basically, yeah, just, I guess, speaking up and accepting help where it comes from would is something that I had to do. There is a lot more support than you think you realize that you think you're going to need. It's not like what it's like in the movies where you just do a needle, go to the doctor, come home. Like it's just not like that. There's lots of appointments. There's lots of even just doing the needles yourself is hard. Like I ended up needing progesterone needles, which normally is something the hubby would do. The needles in the bum and I can't reach to do the right angle. So I ended up getting creative and hiring a nurse to come to do it. So I think, yeah, just getting, being willing to be creative would have made a big difference. But that were the things where I was like, can't I just do that myself? No, you need to do that at this angle or whatever. It's just, yeah, not possible. Yeah, such a good point. I didn't think about the progesterone injections, but it's such a good point. I remember I think somebody asked me when I was doing my egg freezing, like, oh, what happens if you're scared of needles? Can you go Can you go into the clinic each day for them to, to give you the injections? And I was like, I don't think so. I mean, ask but like also like what a trick <laughs> most of these clinics are like in the middle of the cbd good luck <laughs> i was scared of the needle so the nurse the ibf nurse who um gave me my first lot of meds she got me to do my first needle and she handed it to me after showing me in like you know the dummies that they use and she's like okay your turn and i looked at it and all i could say was i don't want a baby anymore and i gave her back the needle she's like yes you do come on i was like no i actually don't and it's fine i'm not nah. And she forced me into the needle and it was fine and it barely hurt. But even then, my sister was meant to come down. She's a nurse for the first week to do them all. COVID. So, yeah, so it's an interesting one. But on the needles, they're really not that bad. I was petrified of needles. When I was a kid, I was at boarding school and I had to go and get a blood test or something. And they, like, use like, baby needles on me because I'm, like, such a baby. And even then I could do them. So you just do them. Yeah. I actually think... I don't love needles, but I wouldn't say I'm anywhere near needle phobic. I just don't like watching them do the blood tests, if you know what I mean. I just like mm-hmm. to look the other way. But I've had to self-inject lots of things over the last couple of years, including egg freezing. Mm. And there is an element of you being in control of it mm-hmm. that does kind of help psychologically. I don't know mm-hmm. what it is. It's like you know when to anticipate the sensation So, because you're the yeah. one doing it. But sometimes it's hard to get over that little mental hurdle of actually like literally plunging it in. It can be yeah. tricky. But most of them are pretty little too. Yeah, most of them they're are not, like they're not very like fine needles. Needles that again, I think TV and movies have a lot to answer for. It wasn't what I expected. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the cool thing about social media: so people showing like the actual reality of it rather than the you know 
media version of it. If you go to my Instagram, there's lots of videos in my highlights of me shoving needles into my stomach. Lots of bruises too. You bruise a lot, but if they they don't hurt, you just bruise a lot. Yeah. What is something that you have learned over, say, and include your pregnancy and maybe motherhood too, about prioritising your own nutrition and well-being throughout trying to conceive pregnancy, being Mm. a mum? I'm sure it's always different throughout each of those life stages, but what's been your biggest kind of takeaway? I think the biggest thing is being really prepared. Like even if it's just when I was working with you, um, even now like Hartley's a toddler, he's almost two, there's no way I'm making dinner unless it's being shoved in the oven at 4.35 o'clock when he's getting hungry. It's just not happening. And I kept yeah. trying to because I see everyone on Instagram, you know, doing dinner and the kids are helping and it's a disaster. So it's not Instagram. Sometimes it's fine and he's happy and it's fun, but no. So I think just being really prepared and also doing what works, you know, just because you want to do, I don't know, such and such meal, if you need to find a workaround, for example, I know there's one time when I was on bed rest, we're like, okay, cooking is too hard. I can't do this. I'm on my own. I'm allowed out of bed an hour a day kind of thing. And we were mm. looking at like, you know, meal deliveries or, okay, mm. of the jar sauces at the at the supermarket, what are the ones that are okay? Mm. And I think, especially when I was doing acupuncture, I think I tried so hard to do it the right way in air brackets, like the, the perfect way, but actually made it too mm. hard for myself and I gave up. So that's one of the things I've learned through all my stages is being prepared and doing it in a way that works for you. Not to say that jar sauces are right. You're probably having a nervous a breakdown of me saying that, but it's not about that. It's about, you know, just finding the easy way. It might be that you're happy to eat soup every night and that's so fine, but make a big batch of it. Don't run out and then, you know, freak mm. out about dinners. I think that's the biggest thing. And I wish I'd done more of that in the lead up to my pregnancy um, mm. or my birth. I was actually talking to someone because my son was born at 34 weeks. I was talking to someone earlier and I was literally standing at the counter eating crackers and dip, wondering why I was losing weight and not producing milk Mm. because that's all I ate for days and days and days because it was all I could physically use my brain for. Yeah. And or I was like, you know, would feel bad stopping to make a meal because that's time I could have with him in the hospital Mm. or I had to pump or whatever. So I think we underestimate being prepared and being prepared early. Had I started making meals at 30 while I was on bed rest, but, you know, 30 weeks – I would have had meals at 34 weeks when he was born, but I didn't because we all assume you're going to get that little wonderful period at the end where Mm. you're sitting around waiting for baby, but it doesn't always happen. Yeah, totally. I say that quite a lot to to my clients is like, you know, if you're making spaghetti bolognese, just make double, freeze half. If you're making soup, just make double, freeze the rest into portions. Like it's not going to go bad in the freezer. Like it's fine. It's just going to be there. And, yeah, absolutely, that postpartum meal prep for birth and, you know, Exactly. You touched on a really great point there that I wanted to highlight, which is obviously having a baby that's born earlier than you expected has its particularly unique challenges immediately postpartum, Mm. um, being separated, milk, all that kind of stuff. But that mental capacity of I don't have time nor energy to think about nor prepare a meal and just eating crackers and dip as an example. And then, yes, the stress of crap, I'm not making enough milk or I'm, you know, and sleep deprivation, stress, undernutrition, not hydrating enough. And then people are going out and buying, you know, lactation supplements, teas, cookies, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. I tell people from the jump, I'm just like, don't buy into any of that stuff because if you're doing all the basic stuff 
well, it's just a Band-Aid. Like the cookie isn't isn't yep. going to give you magical booby milk. It's just going to give you extra calories that you probably should have been getting from your food in the first place. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So it's and sometimes it's a convenient way to do it, and so I'm not knocking it in it in its entirety. But I think particularly on social media, there is this hyper focus on kind of the super food or the super product that's going to save mm-hmm. all your issues, and people just overlook some of the basic stuff. And sometimes the basic stuff isn't in your control, and such is life. Mm-hmm. But yes, I think that's a really important point that you touched on. What did you find was like your biggest hurdle when it came to nutrition during this journey and what did you feel like helped you overcome it? I think probably a couple of things. One would be everyone's opinions. People are so opinionated when it comes to nutrition and things like that and trying to work out between that and what worked for me. So I was on bed rest from 20-odd weeks until my waters broke at 34 weeks and in an ideal world, I would have loved to have been making veggie stir fries and doing this and doing that, but that doesn't fit in to being stuck in bed all day. And so, you know, I had people on Instagram messaging me going, oh, my God, the amount of Uber you eat, how are you going to be able to feed your child healthy and blah, 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 blah. And dealing with that with I'm just trying to survive here, like I'm trying to eat healthy and give my child what it needs and do what everyone else is telling me. So I think people's opinions is a big one. I hear a lot of people say like, you know, I just want like one piece of sushi and I was just like looking at the sushi window and someone like gave me a glare because I'm pregnant or coffee or whatever. So I think like a lot of that's challenging. I think also when you just feel so sick and as I said, all I wanted was KFC chips. I remember one day I ate a packet of KFC chips that I'd Ubered to myself because I was too sick to leave the house and I was like, I just need another one. And I Ubered myself a second one. And as I'm eating it, I'm like, this is not what I should be giving my child. I know I had a meeting, like a appointment with you not that far down the road. And I was like, Steph, like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know what to eat. And it's like, you know, giving yourself permission that if you eat something wrong, you can fix it. But also how on earth do you eat what you're meant to eat when you feel terrible is a big one that I found hard. I just tell people survive now, thrive later, you know, like chances are the nausea, the sickness, the food aversions, it'll pass. What you do, you know, in that regard is not as critical as as we think it is, like as our brains tell us it is, that it's, you know, do or die. It's certainly not. And the main thing is that something's going down, staying down, and that you're well hydrated. There is additional layers of, of complexity and I guess thought because of unique medical histories you know people that have issues with blood sugar levels we don't want that to get too high if that gets too high it is such a delicate balance and there is a big sense of pressure but interestingly what we find anecdotally and maybe you can speak to it as well is that coming to us doesn't add to that pressure it's actually to diffuse that pressure absolutely Um, and it was probably one of the things that made the biggest difference was because I know I I don't know if you've still got it, but the package I ended up on with you, I could mm. put comments in in a Trello board and all that sort of stuff and be mm. like, okay, this happened today or, oh, my God, Steph, someone told me this and you'd be like, that's not a thing, don't worry about it or, yes, we need to tweak this or whatever. Hey, all I can eat today is this, uh, is like, uh, you know, what's going to happen kind of thing. Mm. That was a big one, I think, and someone who's very logical, like I found dietitians in the past, not all, but some are, they're very, very much down one road and it's the completely natural, homemade, all that sort of stuff. And whilst I know mm. that is, you know, where we would like to get to, and that's what you and I talked about, 
having someone that was really logical and normal and go, okay, this is what you should, ideally would like you to do, but how about we just do this right now? And it's going to have yeah. similar results and you're going to be able to do it. And I think that made a like giant difference. Yeah. I always say, who cares if you've got the perfect, it doesn't exist anyway, but if you've got the perfect diet, the perfect supplement plan, the perfect lifestyle on paper, but if it's not getting done, who cares? Like there's zero benefit to you. It's nice in theory, but that doesn't mean anything. So it's kind of like, you know, just like going to do a gym program and you can't do a chin up yet. You don't just sit there going, oh, I can't do a chin up. You have to do all the exercises that get you ready to do a chin up, do banded chin ups. And sometimes you've got to do that for months and months and months or years before you can get your first chin up, you know? Or whatever that is. and Or sometimes you might not ever get to it and it's just about the process, you know, and that's fine too because in that time you've built muscle, you've built skills, you've built strength. It's the same kind of thing with nutrition. But I think we have this really high standard and if you're not meeting your standard, you suck kind of mentality in society. Mm-hmm. We really all got to do a better job of um, getting yeah. past that. And, yes, you're right. I mean the most loyal and long-term clients I've ever had have actually all come from people who have had perhaps not so great experiences with diet, other dietitians mm. before us. And it is challenging to get over that hurdle of seeing someone again and whether you're going to have the same experience again. But I think finding someone who clicks with you, who gets it and who has an approach that's going to be flexible is really the key. Absolutely. And I think also being on the bigger side people automatically assume that you're an idiot and you have no idea like food and calories and actually have quite a good understanding of food and calories and how it all works. But sometimes life gets in the way. You There's multiple things that can affect it. It doesn't mean that just because you're bigger, you're an idiot and you eat, you know, Maccas four times a day or whatever. And I think a lot of people in the health space assume that um, where, again, those are things, good things I found with you is there was no assumption. There was, you know, just a conversation. Absolutely. There's a lot of weight stigma societally and that extends to healthcare professionals and Mm. there's a lot of assumptions that get made about what somebody's doing in their lifestyle. But I just always go in, ask the same questions of each person and find out what's going on and then Mm -hmm. work from there. Don't make assumptions, as they say. Assume you make an ass out of you and me and that is absolutely the case with no exceptions there when it comes to nutrition and weight and, and all that kind of stuff, absolutely. Sarah, what did you find was like really helpful on your path, whether it be your healthcare team, a healthcare provider, an Instagram account, a podcast, family member, friend, you know, what what do you feel like really helped? I think it was choosing my medical team or my, yeah, my medical team really carefully. I think for me, Yes, I spoke to friends and family about it, but they all have different journeys. They all have different opinions. I have friends that are, you know, all about convenience and it doesn't, you know, processed food are fine. I have family members that are literally, you know, make their own bread and bring their own bread ingredients to when they travel and everything in between. And it was just very confusing talking to friends and family. So I think by choosing my medical team really carefully, it meant that everyone's sort of opinions aligned, everyone, and I knew that what you told me Joe was going to trust and what Joe told me you were going to trust and all that sort of stuff, I think made a big difference. I could have absolutely found a version of you probably in Melbourne, but knowing that, you know, Joe trusted you enough to have you on his live and to, you know, part of his circle meant that I was like, okay, cool, like this is going to be fine. And it also meant that when 
things hit the fan and they really did it about 20 weeks. My, I started to go into labour and it was a whole body thing. I didn't have to question it. I knew that what my team was advising was right and I could just go with it. So when I, you know, everyone rang me and went, okay, now I'm bed rest. How do we make this work? You're like, okay, right, this is what we do. I'm like, okay, done. So it took a lot of that mental capacity and stress away, especially being single as well. Because when you're single, everyone else has an opinion that they wouldn't give you if you had a partner, even down to we had massive arguments in my family over his name. Everyone loves his name now, but it was a big disaster and just down to everything else. So I think that medical team that you really trust and you've built trust with over time and that all integrate really well makes a big difference. Yeah, that integration being on the same page is so key. And I think mm. it's sometimes I think I have a number of clients past present that maybe see some practitioners who have different viewpoints and different viewpoints is never not necessarily a bad thing or a negative thing. No, not at all. If it leaves you in the middle confused between conflicting information from two different parties who you trust, that's mm-hmm. where it can add to your stress instead of simplify mm-hmm. Simplify the situation, which hopefully adding people to your team, yes, it can be complex in the number of appointments you're going to, the number of things that you have to do and so on and so forth. But the idea is each of those people trying to help make your life easier or get the outcome that you're after, right? So, like, if then if it's not working, like, reevaluate, like, yes. who's on your team? What are each of their strengths? Are they all playing to their own strengths? Why is it contradicting each other so much? Um, where is that valid or is there something that needs to be done because that's really important as well Mm. but certainly you know people that recommend each other usually are on the same page right like yeah I work with a a lot of Dr Joe's patients and so I kind of know how Dr Joe operates in a lot of clinical situations he knows how we operate and so it's synergistic in nature it's easy but you know when there's other people involved that maybe haven't worked with your doctor before or haven't worked with this dietitian before then it can get a bit more sometimes complex depending on the situation but yes a well-selected team particularly yes I agree Uh, most of our clients who are solo mums by choice end up doing a lot more one-on-one support with us like what you alluded to earlier with our coaching programs where they can touch base more regularly because you don't have your partner to like bounce questions off like you could just go oh like oh I, I'm just is this feeling normal or is is this like mm-hmm. I don't know and like you don't realize it if you are partnered but you probably ask that of your partner or talk about it with your partner mm-hmm. all the time but when you don't have like someone there for that it, it's so much better to just have an, an externalised support um, for Absolutely. sure. What do you think are some of the unexpected parts of being a solo parent? Good, challenging. I, I'm sure there's people listening to your story who are thinking, you know, ooh, this is interesting or mm. this is something I'd like to consider. What are some of the things now having almost a two-year-old little boy, what would be your summary? It sounds corny but probably building a support network. We just launched a new business a week or so ago and one of our nannies was busy and it was, I woke up one morning and I was like, I don't know who to call and I have photo shoots all day and I'm now stuck with a toddler who's very grumpy. In the end, I had friends that came running and it was fine, but I think really building on that village, we say it and we all joke about it, it takes a baby to build a village, but when you're solo, it really does. And we're also independent that a lot of people don't build that village and I think that's really important. I think also building in time for yourself. Um, Hartley starts daycare this week. 
I was adamant he wasn't doing it until he was two. We're very lucky with two beautiful nannies that come and work with him while I'm working and my hours are all, all over the place so he's got them as his little buddies. But I'm at the point now where I need a couple of hours in the house where there's no one here and that doesn't happen very often. And actually acknowledging that, like we are still people too. Um, I've had people say, well, you know, can't you just cut back your know, hours or whatever? And no, because I love what I do and I need to be a happy human as well. And so, yes, it's all about our children, 100%, but we need to be happy people too. And so that means he's going to go play with some daycare friends on a Wednesday or whatever day it ends up being so that I can go run some mum errands, then all for it. Well, yeah. sort of all for it. Still getting around that one. That And then the other thing is plan out your meals. I know I've said it before, but the hardest thing I think is getting dinner on the table on the day and the house reset and dealing with him when he's grumpy. Mm. I know a lot of mums struggle with that, even as when their partners are at work. But when you're solo and you've got to juggle it all, it's a lot. So I started, it's actually a blessing. My cousin had a bub and I started making meals for them. And I would, on a Monday, do three or four meals, separate it out and half for them, half for us. And I've kept doing it. It's the best thing ever. Mm. It just means that there's no stress. Four nights a week, all I have to do is reheat it and add some rice or whatever. Mm. And it means also that what he's eating is actually healthier because I'm not getting mm. to the end of the day where I'm exhausted. It's like, oh, my God, just have nuggets. Yeah, totally. And, like, what's that ad, Snickers or whatever? You you don't trust your tired to hungry self or whatever. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's so true. Like, nobody makes a nutritious food choice when they're ravenous yeah. and tired. Yeah, nobody does. I'm in the chocolate aisle if I'm hungry at the supermarket. I'm not looking at apples. Like, nobody is. Yeah. Like, that's biology and planning for it instead of letting it hit you in the face is is key and as was like there's nothing wrong with nuggets before people get very upset with me but it would be the difference between whatever nuggets I can quickly uber through you know convenient groceries as opposed to being prepared either making nuggets on my Monday or looking at the ingredients and choosing the ones that are better for him so it's just it gives me more headspace to make the right decisions Absolutely. What do you feel like has been challenging about solo parenthood so far Um, or unexpectedly challenging maybe? I think sometimes like expectations. So like expecting that, not expecting, but like hoping that when when he was a newborn that people would be around to help more and like they were, like they wanted to come for cuddles but there wasn't a huge amount of people around to like fold the laundry and all that sort of stuff, which you kind of expect. I don't expect, that's the wrong word, but you kind of are told, like, oh, I'm going to come and help. And when you're solo, that help is really important. And when it doesn't happen, it can be really hard. I think also I love him to death and I could cuddle him for, you know, hours upon hours. But there are some times where I'm like, oh, my God, I just need five minutes. I was adamant to be a non-TV family. He watched probably about 45 minutes of Thomas last night just so I could clean the kitchen from my birthday party the night before and make him dinner. So I think, you know, it's not quite what you would expect sometimes and just not feeling hard about yourself when you do, for example, put the TV on because sometimes you just need that five seconds to yourself that I imagine would happen when your partner comes home and you're like, you know, can just play with him for five minutes while I have a cup or whatever. There's none of that. And he doesn't understand that. He's little. He just wants to play and that's so cute and so fun, but I don't want to play 24-7 like I thought I would. I thought I would be all like, you know, coming out with sensory toys and and you are when you're on your own and you get no break sometimes it's just a lot and you just need five minutes 
Absolutely. Like you said, you're a human being with needs to that and you have more roles in your life than just a mother. And even mothers who have no businesses and don't work, they have more roles than just being a mother as well. So we all need space and and time and how we each access that space and time is is going to be subject to your situation. Mm -hmm. So absolutely. I think so much judgment, right? How we parent, how we do this, how we do that. And everybody just needs to do what they need to do to get get through it, doing the best that they can for themselves and their family, and, and that's really it. And I think we need to not be so bloody judgy. And I think also just not being so judgy unless you've been in that situation or are currently in that situation. Like everyone has different thresholds and you know, just sometimes just go yeah. through with it. Look, at least yesterday it was Thomas and not the Wiggles because I was determined not to have a Wiggles child and after one visit to my best friend, every five minutes all we hear is wiggle, 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 no. So, like, we had Thomas last night. It's, it's okay. We're, we're progressing in life. You're speaking to a Wiggles child here and I'm proud. <laughs> I'm all right. Okay, so Hartley can come and stay with Auntie Steph and wiggle, wiggle every five minutes at 7 in the morning. <laughs> And mummy, I love holidays. Yeah, it's the cutest. Yeah, thing. I even accidentally last time I was in Melbourne, which I think is when I came and hung out with you and Hartley, was I was so it was unexpectedly cold, and so I bought like three or four different jumpers from Zara, and I accidentally bought like block colors from the Wiggles: one red, one purple, and one blue. Yellow is not my color, so I didn't buy yellow. But um, although yellow is my favorite Wiggle personally, but you know, I was just like. Oh, my God, what have I done? <laughs> this is my adult manifestation of, of being obsessed with the Wiggles as a child. Harper sends you a video of his wiggle, 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 wiggle. It is very cute. Three times a day, not 300 times a day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the repetitiveness of it all, absolutely. I blame my best friend. We were pretty good until we went to visit her. And... <laughs> oh, Sarah, if you could say something to someone who is contemplating or currently pursuing single motherhood by choice, what would you share with them? What would be your little words of wisdom? I did today. My friend I caught up with, she's got a plan for within a year. I was like, just do it. Just do it now. I want to be more financially stable. No, just do it now. A, because you don't know how long it's going to take. Mm. And B, it's the best thing I ever did. I was that person. I wanted to have mm. my business at a certain point, blah, 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 blah. And I got to 34 and we weren't quite there yet. I was like, oh, I'll just, I'll just go do it and we'll work it out later. And which is so unlike me. And it's the best thing I ever did. He's very cute. Yeah, he is very cute. What's next for you, Sarah? Um, well, there is plans of number two. I need to book an appointment with you. There's We've got four embryos in the freezer, so hoping my body likes freeze, frozen embryos because he was a freshie. Just working on weight loss and things like that so I'm as healthy as possible. I kind of toyed with it last time, but I didn't really take it seriously, where in hindsight I kind of wish I'd done that a bit more last time. And then we've just launched a new business and focusing on Mr. Hartley. He's very busy. He does not stop. So that's pretty much enough. Yeah. That is more than enough. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I have friends with toddlers and I look at it and I'm secondarily exhausted, but in a good way. I love children. I love hanging out with kids and, you know, my history as a children's dietitian. So I love kids, but. Yeah, I have no insight into what it's like 24-7 and I don't pretend to. <laughs> yeah, he decided last night that he wanted to be in mummy's bed half an hour after and I never co-slept but all of a sudden at the moment that's the thing. So half an hour after going to bed he mm. screamed like someone was trying to hurt him 
they weren't. So into mummy's bed he went and then at 5.30 in the morning he decided it was time to wake up and convince mummy to play and wiggle wiggle. So it's we've had a fun, yeah, we had a lovely night last night. So good luck to anyone who has toddlers. <laughs> I just want to wake up me. with the same amount of energy as a toddler. I know. Like, I was going to be wide awake and, like, ready to go. I know. I was, like, cuddling him. And I swear it was, like, 3 in the morning or something ridiculous. He looked at me all, like, eyes bright and he's like, hello. I was like, go to sleep. The birds are sleeping. Hello. Okay. Sure, Hartley, you've had enough sleep, obviously. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. It'll be good memories. Thank you, Sarah, for joining us and sharing your story and being vulnerable with me and our listeners today. I just know that your story is going to touch this incredible community. So thank you for coming on, sharing, and your time. So so appreciative of you. It's lovely to see your beautiful face. I was saying before, it's like we're around you guys all the time, then we have our babies and we miss you. If you're interested in coming on as a community guest, the link to apply is always in our show notes. And if you are listening and you are thinking, hey, I need some support with my diet and lifestyle for fertility and pregnancy, then you can reach out to us via the link in our show notes to apply for one-on-one fertility and pregnancy nutrition coaching with our expert team of dietitians here at The Dietologist. I really hope you love this episode and I'm looking forward to bringing you more of your unique and incredible stories in this season of fertility friendly food so if you do love it let me know send me a dm on instagram at the underscore dietologist with your thoughts and don't forget to share this episode with a family member friend or colleague and leave us a five-star rating on apple Podcasts or spotify and hit follow wherever you are listening it makes the world of difference to our little podcast until next time everyone bye just quickly Are you currently trying to conceive or are you on a fertility journey? If so, you can feel like there are 101 things you could or should be doing when it comes to your preconception or fertility health. It's easy to get overwhelmed really quickly. This is exactly why we created our preconception lifestyle checklist. It's one page for you and one page for your partner, categorized into supplements, diet, lifestyle and environmental factors, and we focus on the low-hanging fruit. These are simple but effective strategies known to help improve your health and well-being for fertility and also for a healthy pregnancy and a healthy baby too. Over 5,000 people have downloaded it already. Do you want your free copy too? Head to the link in the show notes now to swipe your free checklist. Okay, let's get into today's episode. Fertility Friendly Food, the podcast, acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises the continuing connections to lands, waters and community. We pay our respects to First Nation cultures and to the Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all First Nations people tuning in today. This podcast is recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation.